Thank you for downloading the Root Simple Podcast, your guide to gardening, urban homesteading, and home economics. I'm Eric Knudsen. Kelly has a cold this week, unfortunately, so she's off. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. This week, we talk to Robert Couric about plant roots and what those roots tell us about how to grow strong and healthy plants and trees. Reading from Robert's bio, Robert Couric began his career in organic landscape maintenance in 1974. Over the next four decades, he honed his horticultural-related skills by working with clients throughout the U.S. and has since written 14 books on the creation of sustainable homes and gardens. And now, my conversation with Robert Couric. Welcome, Robert, to the Root Simple Podcast. Hi, Eric. Good to talk to you. So you're up in Santa Rosa, right? So we know where we're talking to you yeah. from. Yeah. Beautiful yeah, Northern about California. 60 miles north of, yeah, 60 miles north of San Francisco. Great. Well, um, what I want to talk to you about today mainly is, is roots, because you have a, a book that came out on the subject, actually many books on the subject. And I know you've been interested in root structure for a long time now, and I thought it might be good to start by describing, actually, some of the really interesting illustrations that you've been working with in, in these books. And I'm wondering where those illustrations com- came from and uh, how they were uh, created. Great. Well, there's two main sources for the illustrations in my newest current book, Understanding Roots. And they came from several German books and then also the work of Dr. Weaver back in the 1930s in Nebraska. My first Roots book, Roots Demystified, had mostly, almost exclusively, uh, Dr. Weaver's drawings. Uh, The new book has uh, four times as many drawings as the first one. And and both were done with what they call a skeleton method. Basically, they actually dug a trench as deep as the roots and brushed away the soil down to small rootlets uh, and then drew it, mapped it. And uh, And then to do the width of the roots on the ornamental trees, they would dig down six inches from the surface all the way out to radiating out beyond the trunk, uh, beyond the drip line to wherever the roots went, so that uh, they mapped those through that as well. Um, the a tremendous amount of effort to do this kind of work. Uh, Dr. Weaver lived in a time when labor was cheap, but he did most of the work himself, I think, from what I can judge. Um, there's a photo in my book of him in in a trench about with his head about four feet below ground, <laughs> uh, digging away at some root system. But the the uh, Germans, I have one photograph of, of them doing the radial root drawing f- for the roots as they radiate out from the trunk in the top six inches of the soil. There's a four, five, six people down on their knees with little brushes uh, working away at the roots, and there's one guy standing there and uh, I, my theory is that that's the professor, <laughs> uh-huh. and he got all his grad students to to do the actual work, but it, it takes a tremendous amount of root because some of these trees, the ornamentals, they have pine trees or Douglas fir trees where the tree 
foliage is, let's say, around uh, 5, 10 feet wide, but the roots go out another 20 feet. So they had to dig a trench uh, 2 times 20 plus 10, so 50 feet long, uh, to get at the entire root system. Uh, so that uh, Dr. Weaver did only um, uh, herbaceous and perennial grasses in Nebraska and vegetables. Uh, so the first root drawings ever found were Dr. Weaver's vegetable drawings. I was uh, crawling through the Agricultural Library in 1978 in Berkeley, and um, in those days, you could go into the stacks and look at books, just pull them out and look at them. And so I pulled out this book, and there were all these drawings with uh, vegetables uh, and some like lettuce four feet wide and three, three and a half feet deep. Um, so that in most cases, the root system is wider than the foliage of the plant, both vegetable and tree crops. One example of the extreme situation on depth was the horseradish. Uh, horseradish foliage gets, you know, maybe two to four feet tall. But somehow or another, Weaver dug down 14 feet because the horseradish roots went down past 14 feet. And so there's a drawing in the book that shows uh, that root system. But primarily the root system is mostly, say, 80, 90, 95% of the root system is in the top two feet when it comes to vegetables. Uh, with trees, the top 18 to 24 inches might be 40, 50, 60% of the root system. I think that was an interesting thing for me was that, you know, even as someone who's a, I don't know if I call myself an experienced gardener, but I kind of have a mental picture of what a tree roots look like, and it just goes to the, the, the drip line of the tree and doesn't go beyond that. And I think one of the interesting things about your book was that it, it did show this enormous um, you know, reach of the roots just laterally from, from the tree itself. Now, I know that you wanted to talk uh, a lot about fruit trees and ornamental trees today. Um, is there a, a huge diversity in, in the, the way that, that tree roots grow, or can we, can we generalize uh, about, about trees? Well, we can generalize uh, about taproots. Less than 2% of all the trees have taproots. So the trees that have taproots are primarily oaks, pines, and nut trees, all of which have to be grown from seed. Uh, if you transplant them, you destroy the taproot, and it doesn't grow back. But for all the roots, the other 98% uh, of the trees the basic guideline is the root system is half again to five times wider than the foliage, depending on what type of soil it's in. So in other words, a heavy soil, uh, half again as wide as the drip line. Uh, loamy soil, three, four times. And then if you got a real heavy clay or a uh, hard pan that forces the roots up to the top six inches or less of the roots of the soil, um, you might be five times or wider than the foliage. Um, then the the depth is, uh, like I mentioned, a, a huge percentage of the roots are in the top one to two feet. Um, and, and yet you can have roots down 10, 12 feet but, uh, and tap roots that deeper, deeper. But it's not the rule. 
um, uh, with fruit trees, you have the really wide root system, but they put down more often than ornamentals things called sinker roots. And those are roots that go out at different points from the distance from the trunk. The root drops down a vertical root, um, and it goes down, uh, you know, maybe two to five to six feet. Uh, and those are assumed to be primarily to anchor the tree and maybe get some nutrients in, in water during times of stress. But by and large, even with fruit trees, most of the roots are in the top foot. Okay, now, so taking this information and these really interesting diagrams that you have, what does it say about um, how we care about, how we care for trees? Now, I know most of the listeners of this podcast are probably going to be interested in, in fruit trees. So perhaps we should start with what this information tells us about how we should plant trees. I mean, should we get bare root trees? How big should the trees be? How should we prepare okay. the soil for their um, planting, uh, given the kind of information that you've, you've learned from, from looking at these really interesting um, uh, excavations? Yeah, I have a chapter uh, just on transplanting from everything from bare root to container to bald and burlap. Um, but basically, the guideline is no matter how you plant it, you only refill or cover the roots with native soil. You don't amend anything um, because for a bunch of reasons, but the main reason is if the root system's going to grow three, four, five times wider than the foliage, there's no way you can prep enough soil to keep the root system happy. If you dig a hole, let's say, one to four feet wide and put 50% compost in there with the soil and then plant the tree, uh, the roots are going to go nuts at the beginning because they've got all that fertility. But when they hit the zone that's native soil, they'll either stop in their tracks like hitting a brick wall or be very slow to grow out of the planting hole. So planting holes with a lot of compost in them tend to localize the root system closer to the trunk. So if, you're, if your roots are going to grow half again to five times wider than the foliage, you might as well get them used to that soil day one um, so that they have to grow in the planting hole exactly the same soils they're going to have to grow in for the rest of their life. Uh, the, the thing about that is you have to have the right rootstock for the soil, you can't just plant everything in any soil. So a good good example with fruit trees, a uh, real radical example would be you just can't grow peach trees in heavy clay. Uh, peach tree roots are uh, much more prone to root rot uh, near the base of the, the trunk. Um, and so the they do best in a loamy soil or in a very high, large uh, container, uh, raised bed, I mean. What about, uh, a side question here on persimmons, because persimmons have a tap root, right? Um, is that one of the exceptions yeah, yeah. to the, the rule? And, and how, what do they need and, and um, in terms of planting? Yeah, when I buy a bare root uh, persimmon, it has what looks like a tap root probably is a very deep taproot. But again, in the harvesting, they sever that taproot 
in order to have a small enough number of roots that you can ship it. And so that pretty much destroys a taproot, and it grows a lot of lateral roots. So again, you're just focused on how wide the root system grows as opposed to the depth. So the planting hole only needs to be as deep as the bare root roots or the bottom of a burlap, bald and burlap plant. Um, you can fork the soil at the bottom of the planting hole uh, to help loosen it up, make it easier for the roots to leave the planting hole, but you don't amend the planting hole. Now, should I fork laterally if I have like a heavily compacted clay soil? Yeah, you can uh, fork a spading fork where you stick it in and rock it back and forth. But again, um, you can't do that as wide as the root system would like to be. In other words, uh, even if the tree only gets four feet wide in a loamy soil, it might be 12, 14 feet wider than the foliage. So that's too big of an area to take the time to fork the entire area. But I'd often do it in the planting hole just to make sure that there's a less of a kind of a stone wall type interface between the planting hole and the native soil. But I try to avoid that by never digging the hole with a shovel because uh, the back of the shovel will kind of slick any clay that's in the soil. So I use a spading fork both for excavating and then rocking the spading fork at the bottom of the hole um, or the sides as well. And then then I, I might use a shovel to fill it, but uh, not to dig it. Now, this is kind of a big topic. We could probably talk for hours on this, but watering is something that I know I've struggled with over the years. Um, what what does this uh, what do these diagrams say about how we should water uh, fruit trees? Well, one of them is you know you can buy these things that. Um, Ross Root Feeder, I think, is one of the name brands. It's a, a tube about two feet long. And you're supposed to jam it in the ground, hook a hose to it, and turn it on and uh, water the roots two feet down. Well, that means you miss most of the roots. <laughs> it's like, right. well, if, if 60% is in the top 18 inches, the Ross Root Feeder uh, is missing most of them. And on top of that, it's totally flooding the pore structure so that the pore spaces get completely filled up with water so that a lot of the beneficial bacteria and other things uh, die or, or go into suspended animation. And so it's a very uh, traumatic experience for the, for the tree. Uh, but basically, um, a lot of people, when they plant a tree, will put the drip irrigation emitter, if they use drip, uh, like maybe at the edge of the planting hole at best, uh, oftentimes at least halfway between the edge of the planting hole and the trunk. Well, that's where the least amount of roots are going to be even when they start to grow uh, day one. So I start drip emitters at the interface between the uh, planting hole uh, and the native soil, which might be a foot uh, away, and then I do... Uh, tubing every uh, 12, 18 inches um, in a grid, sort of like sheet music, parallel lines of tubing. Mm -hmm. uh, so like to get the whole root system, I do these parallel lines out uh, beyond the drip line as much as I can afford. 
so that I have many, many points of irrigation covering a huge volume of the root system. Uh, so it, it's not it's not digging a moat around the tree and watering it, that moat forever if you're using a hose. You might dig a moat around the tree when you transplant it, but then you need to water beyond the drip line primarily more so than under the drip line, uh, whether you use a sprinkler or a moat or a uh, soaker hose or inline emitter tubing or plunged in emitters for that matter. Now, this is the the big question, of course, is is how how long to water for and how frequently. Now, I know some people say, well, deep watering infrequently. Others would say shallow watering more frequently. Where do you stand on that? Well, if you, like, see, in California, we don't get much in the way of rains after May at the latest. Uh, at least in Northern California here where I live. Um, so if we plant a bare root tree in uh, January, February, the ground is totally moist, uh, and after you plant the tree, you water it in real heavy to get rid of air pockets. So the ground is, is very moist, and if you mulch it deeply uh, at that time, the, root, the soil may stay moist enough to support root growth to the surface, into uh, June, um, and so the root system is getting wider and wider off the existing soil. But let's say um, you start irrigating in May. I prefer to have people experiment with uh, daily irrigation uh, for small, small amounts of time to maintain that constant soil moisture. So in other words, you get to May when the soil is friable, uh, it'll crumble some, but it's still got moisture in it. And you maintain that with daily irrigation for the rest of the season. Uh, the tree grows like gangbusters um, because it has sufficient moisture in a warm soil to promote lots of growth. Um, and so, like, this method also works with vegetables. And a friend of mine uh, tried out uh, switching from their normal once or twice a week to three times a day, but very short, short periods of time, and they're totally convinced that uh, yields are much higher, so they're staying with three times a day for uh, three minutes. And is your thinking that, you know, again, most of these roots are in those top, um, what is it, 18 inches, or it depends on whether it's a vegetable or a tree, I guess, and and that's basically right. what you're trying to, to keep moist at that, that time? Yeah, in other words, with the lettuce, it, 60% of the roots are in the top foot. Um, with the fruit tree, you might have 40% in the top foot, uh, and then 60 80% in the uh, top two feet. So keeping that top uh, surface area, or not surface, keeping the upper zones of the soil moist uh, makes for fantastic growth because in the book I have a whole lot of charts on what happens in the top two to four to six to eight inches of the soil. And there's cases where the top two inches of the soil has over twice the number of beneficial bacteria than the soil in the four to eight inch zone. Uh, mycorrhizae association 
I think it's almost double again, the top eight inches versus the top 16 inches. Uh, there's a lot of charts that show the top uh, two to four inches are, you know, one to ten times more beneficial life stuff, critters or bacteria, uh, actinomycetes, etc. So these guys love an aerobic environment. Um, so the reason I use drip is I can add moisture to the soil, but the it's only a very tiny area at the point of the drip emitter that gets too wet to support all this beneficial life. Uh, the capillary action takes the moisture deep, especially sideways, to keep the soil moist but not so saturated that the pore structure gets flooded. So this means that taking care of the top two to eight inches uh, uh, with, with uh, fanatic uh, attention to irrigation and mulching, um, you get the best growth of everything, uh, the plants, the, the fungi, the bacteria, uh, et cetera. Now, uh, before we leave uh, irrigation, uh, listeners should know that you've also written a book on drip irrigation, kind of the classic book on drip irrigation. I wondered if you had a, a favorite variety of uh, drip irrigation that you would use for either fruit trees or vegetables. In the, in the book, it favors what's called inline emitter tubing for everything. Um, vegetables, uh, fruit trees, ornamental trees, shrubs, even, uh, believe it or not, native plants. But in other words, uh, the emitter is built inside the tubing at regular intervals, like every 12 inches or every 18 inches or every 36 inches, depending on how it's manufactured, so that in a loamy light soil, you would buy the tubing with emitters every 12 inches in a heavy clay soil, maybe, maybe as much as every 36 inches. Um, but the thing about the inline emitter tubing is a bunch of things. One, the emitter is built inside, so there's nothing to break off. Uh, many people punch in emitters in the drip tubing, and then they find after a number of years they hit it with a hoe or the sunlight makes it brittle. Uh, they're constantly down on their knees trying to find the holes from the broken emitters and filling it with a goof plug and then uh, punching in a new emitter. So that's all avoided with the inline emitter tubing. The tubing itself is just as sturdy as that solid half-inch tubing that people punch emitters into. So you can walk on it and it won't break. Um, and the emitter inside won't break. Um, and it's the tubing itself is rated for 10 years in full sunlight but my friend and I have a garlic farm that has, uh, we put 12 inches of straw on it after planting every year, um, and that settles down to four inches, let's say. So that tubing's lasted over 25 years because it's protected from the sunlight uh, by the straw mulch. Um, so that what happens is I compared going to a drip irrigation store and buying a 100-foot roll of inline emitter tubing, and then buying pressure-compensating punched-in emitters, a 100 of those, I compared that to the cost of buying a 100-foot roll of inline emitter tubing, and it costs 40% more to do punched-in emitters than to buy a roll of inline emitter tubing. 
it seems a little bit more expensive when you buy it, but you forget that the emitters cost money and you're putting one every foot. Plus, you have to go to all the trouble uh, to punch in those emitters. Uh, so it spends a lot of time. So I call inline emitter tubing uh, the most elegant form of drip irrigation because you roll it out, flush it, cap it, and you're done. Uh, and you just work with it for years thereafter. Uh, trying to punch emitters can be a real pain. Yeah. I had a client back in the 90s who said, okay, we'll save money. You put down the solid tubing, and this weekend my husband and I will punch in all the emitters. Well, the hill was so big that by the time they got done, they had to go to a physical therapist yeah. for more than <laughs> one visit <laughs> to take care of their wrists, uh, whereas the landscapers used to doing it so their wrists last. But it can be uh, a real health hazard punching in too many emitters. <laughs> okay, now I have a totally self-serving question, but I think there's a lot of people in California who are planting natives now because we've had a, a long drought here. How we and we just we actually just we have a house on a hill. There's a hillside clay soil. We just put in a bunch of native plants, but are a little confused about how to water them. And I'm guessing it's going to be drip. You're going to recommend, but um, what what are your thoughts about well, getting natives established? Let's look at the overall picture first. I'm not going to recommend drip if you do it right. In other words, um, I lived in Occidental for 33 years, uh, west of Santa Rosa. And I had a loamy soil in the top, 12 to 18 inches. Um, but uh, I wanted to figure out how to acclimate my plants to reduce or eliminate irrigation. So even though I wrote the book on drip irrigation, uh, I hadn't watered my landscape in 33 years. Uh, and I did that by planting only in October or November just before the rains begin, watering by hand until the rains began and putting a whole lot of mulch on it and just letting the plants grow from that point forward. Now, I used uh, some natives, but I had to use a lot of Mediterranean plants because of the deer. Uh, the deer ate a lot of my native plants except for mostly the salvias and the bakaris, uh and a handful of others, but... I did a lot of lavender and rosemaries and other herbal and Mediterranean plants. But basically, they got planted in the fall, mulched like crazy, and then they were on their own. And what happened was they grew a whole lot slower, so they filled in much more slowly over the years, and they didn't get as wide as an irrigated plant would get. And the bloom period was much, much shorter um, so that, like I, where I live in Santa Rosa now, I have some lavenders that get almost no water whatsoever, uh, and they're 10 feet away from a lavender that's in one of those troughs that I grow in. And the one in the trough is still in 20 to 40% bloom, and it's uh, four times wider than the foliage uh, of the plants that get almost no water in the ground. So there are trade-offs, but so basically let's start with that. I, I, I didn't irrigate at all at my house. I learned drip irrigation from working with all my clients. Uh, but then if, uh, if you're going to use drip irrigation, I've done several talks to native plant societies, and it tends to blow their minds, but I say uh, let's experiment with it. Uh, one is wherever you put the emitter, 
it's got to be far away from the base of the plant so you don't get crown rot. Many natives are prone to uh, crown rot if they get moisture when the soil's warm in the summer. So that's the first rules. The second rule is it might work out better in this case to do deep watering uh, so they get used to no irrigation over time. You can tweak it back. Let's say you start with daily irrigation, minute amounts like a minute a day, uh, which is a minute amount of water when you have a half a gallon an hour emitter. So let's say you run it daily the first year, and then you cut it back half of that in the second year, cut it back some more, and then by the fourth, fifth, or sixth year, you might be able to eliminate irrigation altogether. But you've done two things. One, you've got a bigger plant, showier plant, and the root system is very extensive now because you've, multi, you've added lots of points of irrigation beyond the foliage. And that means you've got a uh, root system that is uh, exploring a huge cubic volume of soil so that when you get rid of the irrigation, um, it's got a whole lot of roots to grab moisture from a huge uh, volume of soil. Um, but on a hill, you've got to be real careful. Um, I did a planting once on a heavy clay soil on a slope. It was close to 30 degrees, very steep. And we did a, this is in the old days uh, when I did a soil prep with four to six inches of purchased topsoil and tilled that in by hand because it was on a slope. Um, but what I did is I had, pe I had the contractor build a little mound on the slope where every plant was to go with 50% round gravel. So the contractor was a friend of mine, and she went nuts. She said, you know, we spent all our time taking rock out of the soil, and here you want us to bring in rock. <laughs> but they did it because she knew me, and she said, well, if Corey recommends it, let's try it. So um, it was four, 30 to 40, 50% round river rock so it doesn't settle and compact. Uh, you don't use crushed rock. But anyway, so the planting mound was 4 to 12 inches uh, high and about as wide. And it was, the plant was planted on the top portion of the mound. And then the drip eventers were put halfway between the plants. So that in this case, I was using uh, inline emitter tubing uh, with 12-inch spacing. And every 24 inches, we planted a plant between the emitters because if the tubing is above the plant and the emitter is above the directly above the plant, it can get too moist and cause crown rot. So they did all this and mulched it, and the next uh, spring or summer, oh, as many as 30% of the plants were dead. <laughs> so they said, oh, Corey messed up. But they explored the planting, and they found that in all cases, the mound had not been prepared well enough and had shrunk, forming like a small little shallow swimming pool on the up, uphill side, or the emitter had, the plant had been planted wrong, or emitter had slipped so that the, the emitter itself was directly above the plant uh, on the slope, and it was getting too much moisture at the crown. So they replanted everything with that in mind, and everything did fine. 
Now, uh, you mentioned mulch several times. Do you have some thoughts on good sources for mulch and the types of mulch? Well, it really depends on where you live. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, You know, if if it doesn't matter to you, straw is great, but uh, we're lucky enough to be close to a large organic rice manufacturer, grower, and so we get organic rice uh, straw has almost no seed in it, and if it does, it tends to like more water than it's going to get, uh, and it's organic. But it's hard in a lot of parts of the country to find organic straw, but you have to try to find it if you can because regular uh, culture of uh, grains will sometimes use different uh, ways of controlling broadleaf weeds. And one of them, I can't remember the name of it. It's a real complicated name, but it's it's not a Roundup material. It's a granular substance that's added to the soil to help prevent the germination. It's like a pre-emergence, so that it kills the, the plant the second it starts to germinate and doesn't grow any further. But it's long-lived in the soil. So we had a composting operation here where they started getting plants dying on them, vegetable plants in particular, um, and they figured out it was because they were getting a lot of uh, grass uh, clippings from the ornamental uh, mow-and-blow type people, uh, and they had used this uh, pre-emergent in the uh, lawn to keep the broadleaf weeds down. And so they had to really keep an eye on their source. Uh, but what what I like to use in our area is called uh, arbor mulch, and it tends to be that the manufacturer of arbor mulch takes all kinds of green and woody material and chips it up, but they chip it up in a way that's not all the same size. So you have everything from dust to things as big as a quarter inch or a half inch uh, wood chips but it has all different sizes, so it settles down really well, and you only need two to four inches of the material to get a really dense mulch. Uh, But also, it decomposes faster. If you get just wood chips, they can be there for decades, practically, before they they decompose well. But this arbor mulch, in less than five years, you've got a pretty good loamy soil, so to speak, added to the surface of the garden. Now, speaking of enhancing soil, are there uh, practices that you do to encourage the the microorganisms that you mentioned in those top few inches of soil? Yeah, well, basically uh, a lot of mulch, not so much deep, uh, but the whole area. In other words, uh, if you're buying mulch, uh, anything above four inches in depth, you get a diminishing return for the amount of money. So in other words, it's more cost-effective when you buy mulch to get it four inches or less. Uh, six inches of mulch will reduce more moisture, but not as much, uh, and it costs a lot more. Um, so uh, four inches of mulch, um, providing nutrients. If you're going to fertilize, you fertilize from the surface down, over a wide area so that you get soluble fertilizers that can seep into the soil as opposed to digging up the soil. Uh, One of the biggest problems with tilling is that the mycorrhizae fungi 
the filaments get physically destroyed. And uh, they're essential in trees in particular, but all vegetables except for brassicas, um, they're essential for grabbing phosphorus. Uh, most trees cannot actually grab enough phosphorus with their root system to be happy. They need to have that beneficial relationship with mycorrhizal uh, fungi. And compaction from walking on it or tillage uh, will d destroy the uh, filaments in the top portions of the soil. And so when you have the top three inches, two to three inches of soil has 50% more filaments than the next two to four inches, uh, you really could do a lot of harm with tillage. But again, in perennials, you've got to get the right plant with the right soil. In other words, at my house in Occidental, I was fortunate enough to have a, quite a, a nice, loose, loamy soil uh, in the top 12 to 18 inches and then clay. So the root system was staying above that clay, but because it was well-drained, uh, I could use Mediterranean plants, and because I didn't water them in the summer in the wrong place, uh, they lived and thrived. But uh, I still planted those things on a mound to get good drainage. Uh, with the natives and the Mediterranean's drainage is essential uh, to good to good growth. And what kind of soil are you dealing with in your new house? <laughs> it's it's a pretty good soil in the top uh, two to eight inches. Uh, it's a it's a pretty loamy soil, a lot of earthworms, um, and then it gets a heavier soil oh, four, six, eight inches down. But the main problem at my new house is a tremendous amount of Bermuda grass, a little bit of crabgrass, a lot of morning glory. And uh, there's something else I can't remember. But anyway, it's a, the weeds are a real problem. Um, so uh, if I were to, I haven't worked in much air yet, but if I was going to work right now, I would tend to use permanent mulches between beds. And I would actually cultivate them for a while to try to get out as much of the root system as possible. Um, so that tillage... Uh, can be beneficial in the sense of the overall sense of things because you can grab a lot of root mass uh, and pull it out and try to not eliminate but greatly reduce uh, Bermuda grass. So I have friends who have Bermuda grass and they till that area where it is every year in order to remove as many roots as possible. Now my entire yard is not Bermuda grass so I can do gardening where there's less of it or none of it. But if there's some, I would definitely till those beds by hand uh, with a spading fork every year and cut back on the amount of uh, roots uh, that are there. Um, but I would also put in permanent weed cloth for the pathways so that at least it's suppressed in the pathways. Uh, and I use a type of it's not a cloth at all. It's a woven plastic, and it was primarily developed to put down on the ground in wholesale nurseries where the container plants sit on top of this so that no weed whatsoever gets through the woven plastic, and um, it'll last 15 years in full sun, 
but I put two to four inches of uh, wood chips uh, from a tree service. Um, so I cover that plastic's going to last decades. Uh, but it's so tightly woven that the Bermuda grass doesn't grow through it, uh, but it's so long-lived, it's not like that crappy stuff you buy at Home Depot that's kind of feels like felt more than woven. Uh, that stuff can be a nightmare after two to five years. I know it's a controversial topic, but would you ever use a little bit of Roundup on those um, on that Bermuda grass? Yeah. And if so, ten years ago I would have. Yeah, I I would have brushed the about thirty years ago. I had a device that was the best way to apply Roundup. It was a tube, like a handle on a golf golf club, but the tube was like three quarter inches in diameter or an inch. And down at the bottom, it had a wick, so that the wick was four to eight inches long. And so the concentrate, you put 100% ground up in the handle, and it would wick out the bottom, so you just roll the wick onto the foliage, so there's no spray drift whatsoever. But we learned so much about how nasty uh, Roundup is in every way, especially uh, when you're filling up the spray tank or filling up the tube on that wicking uh, mechanism. Uh, it's so dangerous to the person applying it, uh, not to mention all the residue. You know, in the old days we thought, well, it gets bound up in the clay and doesn't migrate around. Well, it does. So um, there's just no way I can justify Roundup anymore. Got it. Now back to tilling. Um, you mentioned in the book bio-drilling. Uh, what, what is bio-drilling? Well, bio-drilling is especially important in areas that get a freeze in the fall. Basically, it's growing up a special radish that was developed for bio-drilling, and it, basically it's a version of a daikon. Um, and the deal is you plant it, and the root grows one to three inches in diameter, and it just literally heaves the soil. So it's it's cracking the soil in all directions because of it, as it increases the diameter. And then in areas that get a hard freeze in the fall, it kills off the plant. So when you come to the garden in the spring, you've got all these literally big holes in the ground uh, and a lot of fractured soil. So if you use a spading fork or till it a little bit, near the surface, you've got a very well-fractured soil due to the plant growth. Um, so there are uh, seeds you can buy, very expensive seed, specifically like radishes or daikons developed for bio-drilling, but basically you could do it with any kind of daikon seed, I think. You have a really interesting section in your book, Understanding Roots, on dynamic accumulators. And um, I guess first we should define for people who might not know what that is, what a dynamic accumulator is. And then maybe you could talk about how your thoughts about dynamic accumulators has changed over the years. In 1986, I did my edible landscaping book, and... Uh, I was the first person to ever propose dynamic accumulation and do a chart. Uh, there must have been 40, 50 plants and columns of minerals and nutrition like nitrogen, 
calcium, mer- not mercury, um, uh, copper, iron, etc. Um, so the concept was that there are certain plants that are better at grabbing nutrients than other plants, so that if you grew those plants and put them in your compost pile, you might enhance the amount of, say, calcium. So like comfrey is a good example of a plant that tends to have high levels of calcium in its foliage. Uh, of course, you don't want to dig it up. You want to just cut the foliage a couple inches above the ground. But uh, its calcium levels are higher than other some other weeds. Some other weeds are even higher calcium content than comfrey. Um, so I had this chart, and it became a chart that many, many permaculture books have replicated uh, and maybe added a little bit to. Um, but my chart was based on seven books of anecdotal information. So now uh, my book came out in 86, or whatever that is, 30, 40 years later. I realized, well, this is not very scientific. So I decided, well, what do we, what can we, excuse me, what can we do to find out uh, is there really a dynamic accumulation and how much and how important. So I ran across uh, Dr. Duke, James Duke, from the USDA. He studied plants for decades as the only herbalist at the USDA, and he did a lot of tissue samples of mostly edible plants relative to how many parts per million, not uh, ounces and stuff, but how many parts per million of various nutrients um, from a lot of different edible plants. So when you go through that list of hundreds of uh, plants, you'll find that, yes, there are some plants that are much higher in parts per million. Uh, uh, but the problem is it, it is parts per million. In other words, this is minute amounts of material. Uh, but the other thing is that I did in my book list the top ten based on Dr. Duke's uh, studies of the tissue both fresh tissue and uh, dry tissue. And uh, Son of a Gun, one to three, in, in the top ten, one to three of those plants were the same plant for that element that I had in my original dynamic cumulative list. So there was a little bit of overlap, but by and large, it didn't overlap much at all. Um, so that the new dynamic cumulative list is not nearly as extensive, but it's much more accurate. Uh, but whether or not, like, like cal- uh, comfort g- gathers a lot of calcium, but how much that improves your compost in net available calcium uh, sort of like remains to be seen uh, uh, because it's small amounts difference. Uh, the flip side, not the flip side, but the other aspect of dynamic accumulators was that everybody assumed it was deep-rooted plants that gathered all these nutrients that other shallow root couldn't get. Um, so I have a whole chapter on deep roots, and basically the quick summary is that you cannot prove that deep roots gather more nutrients than the surface roots of the same plant. Um, so that, uh, many people said comfrey has roots down to 10 feet. Well, I can't find any case where that's been proven and the two root systems that I found that are in my book are less than 18 inches deep and grow mostly sideways. Uh, so basically the chapter summary is that 
what it probably is is a plant has sort of like a evolutionary ability to gather more, say, calcium than other plants, but not necessarily due to the depth of the root system, but just the plant is better at it. Hmm. Now, of course, I have another self-serving question on this topic, which is that I and a lot of people in urban areas have uh, high lead and, and, in my case, zinc levels as well. And, of course, uh-huh. this, this figures into dynamic accumulators. Now, are there any of the, the plants that you found that actually can be used for, for bioremediation to pull those contaminants up? Did you find any uh, useful plants? Is that a, is that a, um, a pra- and I guess the question I have, too, is that a practical strategy for just a home gardener like myself? Right, exactly. Well, I do have a, two sections in the back of the book appendix uh, on uh, one of them's hypoaccumulation, which is another way of saying bioremediation, using plants to suck toxic stuff out of the ground. But the thing that that I don't like about all this discussion about bioremediation by home gardeners is there's two things they forget. One, it's a slow process. Uh, It can take um, years to get the top 12 inches of soil free of lead using plant material. Uh, many years, like four to six or more, um, depending on the lead and all kinds of stuff. But basically, and then when you have that plant that's accumulated higher proportions of lead than other plants, it's toxic, so you can't compost it. You have to literally take it to a toxic hazardous waste dump or a special incinerator that incinerates the plant material along with other material that they're incinerating to destroy the chemical nature of the toxins. So that I don't consider it possible for a home gardener to remediate soil from lead by growing plants. Uh, And that sets me apart from a lot of people who basically, where are they putting that plant material uh, after it's grabbed all the nutrients? So the other side of the coin is that people need to know the lead content because quite a number of edible plants are very good at grabbing lead. So I have a list of about 12, 14 uh, vegetables that are superior in grabbing lead than other plants, and one of them is spinach. Uh, And there's a woman up in the state of Washington who did research on spinach and tried to bioaccumulate, use spinach as a bioaccumulator to detoxify soil with lead, and it didn't work. Um, but the plants did have more lead in them than plants grown in soil that didn't have high levels of lead. So basically, you got to test for lead if you're in an urban environment, especially if there's a house with white paint uh, from before 1978, when they, 78 when they eliminated lead and white paint. Uh, but if there was a house there in 78, um, the lead stays in the soil forever, so you got to test. And then I think it's better to grow in containers if you have a high lead content. Grab, uh, pay for some good topsoil from an area that doesn't have lead, and grow in containers. Yeah, I have a uh, 1920 White House, so <laughs> formerly White uh-huh. House in 1920. Uh, so that might be a cool. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know the the other thing is the uh, you know they they use lead arsenic as a major pesticide 
uh, at the turn of the century before we had other chemicals uh, to spray for pests. They used this lead arsenic because it was a broad spectrum, just killed everything inside. Mm, great. Um, but uh, the, there are orchards all over New England that are still too toxic to be certified organic because of that accumulation of the soil, the uh, lead and arsenic. Wow. Well, we're reaching near the end of our time here. Is there anything that, that you wanted to say that we didn't uh, cover in our brief conversation? Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get in. Oh, actually, oh, another, I'm, I'm sorry, self-serving question again. Mycorrhizal uh-huh. inoculants, adding mycorrhizal inoculants, uh, yes or no? <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, that would be one I would mention. Um, basically, the chapter on that says, in summary, uh, if you buy inoculants, they're not going to necessarily enhance what you've got already. In other words, most garden soils, have plenty of mycorrhizal association. You just need to uh, further their health. Um, buying inoculants is a waste of money. Some are expensive, some are cheap, but you don't need it. But actually, you can have a problem when you add inoculants. In other words, the mycorrhizae are territorial, so if you buy inoculant and add it to your existing soil that has existing mycorrhizae, you, they start duking it out and it may be one of them survives and the other doesn't, so that it is possible for inoculants to work against you. Um, so I just say uh, promote the existing mycorrhizal by getting rid of as much compaction as, problem as possible, uh, no tillage, and lots of mulch. And moisture, right? Isn't that another factor? Moisture, yeah, yeah. You know, that's, yeah as that's we already point, talked yeah. about. Well, yeah. um Robert, I, I really want to thank you. Uh, do you want to say something about how people can get a copy of one, one of your many books, actually, in, in a way that maybe perhaps other than Amazon, unless that's the way to do it? Yeah, exactly. You can get it from my website. And um, Understanding Roots right now is cheaper on my website than Amazon. Um, the Drip Irrigation book is cheaper if you include Amazon's shipping charges. So you can get my books uh, cheaper than Amazon, basically, from my website, which is robertcorick.com. So it's Robert K O U R I K dot com. So there's no space. Robert Corick, one word, K O U R I K. Um, and you can get it from bookstores. And uh, one month, uh, my distributor sold more of my books through bookstores than Amazon. So. Amazon's not everything it's totally cracked up to be, but I refer to Amazon as the Monsanto of self-publishing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's uh, just a disaster for public self-publishers. Yeah, good. And then, of course, actually, I know that if you go to the Heirloom Expo in Santa Rosa, people can meet you there, and you usually do a talk. Yeah. So I assume you're going to be there next year. Yeah, I've been there every year. Excellent. And... Uh, I have my books, and I autograph, and I talk, and most years I do a lecture on either uh, roots or drip irrigation. People can pester you with questions in the booth as well. Yeah, yeah, no charge. Exactly. All right, Robert. Well, thank you so much for being on the Root Simple Podcast. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it, Eric. That was Robert Couric. If you'd like to pick up a copy of one of his many books, head to his website, which is robertcouric.com. 
His last name is spelled K-O-U-R-I-K. I'll have links in the show notes. If you like this show, please share it with a friend via email or social media. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple Podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.